And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. It's Tuesday as we uh, kind of plow through the last 10 days of September. And why is that important? Well, as we talked about yesterday a bit, and in this morning's daily commentary. So if you go by the website right now, click on the daily commentary link, you can get today's uh, latest post talking about the last 10 days of September tend to be, well, a bit more sloppy. But we did say yesterday that the markets were set to kind of open a little lower yesterday as, you know, basically a lot of people kind of, you know, kind of saw what happened on their statements on Friday. Over the weekend, they kind of, you know, panicked a bit and then, you know, put a bunch of orders in to execute right at the open of the market yesterday. And we saw markets opening down, you know, about 1% yesterday morning. But by the time we got off the show, those futures had started to recover. And immediately after the open, the markets actually started rallying and rallied through the end of the day and actually turned positive. Now, that's actually got a couple of decent components to it as well. So first of all, as we've talked about here, you know, the, the selling pressure that we saw last week because of all the options expiration, um, that was, you know, kind of putting a lot of pressure on markets. And again, all that options expiration selling has to now be put back on books as, you know, a lot of contracts get rewritten, et cetera. So again, the, the days following and options expiration Friday tend to be a little bit better. And this is why we said yesterday, be careful kind of selling at the open. Um, you're likely going to get a bit of a rally here. And that's what we saw yesterday. Uh, this morning, futures are pointing down a little bit this morning. Not a lot, but, you know, after yesterday's kind of recovery, not surprising, still been a, a little bit of slacking this morning. Um, what was good about yesterday, and, and we talked about this, is the market did bounce right off of those kind of May-June lows. So again, we continue to kind of hold that support level that we've built really back going to May. And again, that kind of support line right now is really good because what that does is that just kind of helps give the markets a bit of support here at the moment for markets to try to rally a bit. Now, uh, again, you know, we're, we're have, have been breaking down some technical channels. We're in cell, still in cell conditions in terms of MACD indicators, those type of things. So again, there is downward pressure on prices and, and I certainly don't want to delude you from that. <laughs> but again, we talked about, you know, be careful not to let kind of emotions jump in. Um, markets are going to be very tentative today um, as the Fed starts their two-day meeting. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the Fed talks about for two days because they all know what's going on economically, but I'm sure <laughs> they've got stuff to talk about. But, you know, everybody's pretty clear at this point. They're going to hike 75 basis points and you really kind of with a focus on, you know, kind of that same message that Jerome Powell delivered back at Jacksonville. Now, there was an interesting story out yesterday uh, in the media from John Hilsenrath, who said that, the, that Jerome Powell, at the very last minute, scrapped his speech for Jackson Hole and drafted this very short set of comments that was a very quick address. It was only eight minutes long, uh, talking about the positioning of the Fed at Jackson Hole. And this was a very different speech. And 
you know, what had happened is markets were rallying fairly strongly going into Jackson Hole, kind of really, you know, telling the Fed that they weren't buying into the Fed's whole idea of, you know, really fighting inflation. And remember, just prior to Jackson Hole, markets were rallying pretty sharply. And, you know, markets were saying like, ah, yeah, you're going to pivot here pretty quick. We don't really believe you that you're going to be fighting inflation. And so uh, Jerome Powell ditched that speech and wrote these comments that really kind of shook the markets. And that was, that's what caused this sell-off uh, over the last few weeks following that Jackson Hole Summit because he came out and clearly stated that he was okay with an economy growing at subpar rates. Now, that's below-trend growth. He was okay with causing some economic pain, some household pain in order to fight inflation because inflation was really the monster, kind of that boogeyman in the closet. And, and the Fed and Jerome Powell said he was very clear about fighting this. And of course, that was why markets really kind of sold off here on that idea that, that you know, Papa Bear came out and kind of slapped the market and said, hey, don't be trying to second guess what I'm going to be doing with, with the markets in the economy. So. Um, now the question becomes, what is he going to say tomorrow, right? That's going to be the big issue. And of course, uh, late Wednesday afternoon, we'll get the press conference. We'll hear that Thursday morning. Michael Leibowitz will be here. We'll dissect it all uh, and tell you what it all means. But right now, the expectations are really are not much of a change from what he said at Jackson Hole. Still a clear fight against that inflationary pressure. And probably a 75 basis point rate hike. Now, there's some variables out there that the Fed could take. And ING had a very interesting table out this morning of the different options, and I've put it on our Twitter page this morning, at Lance Roberts. So if you go to Twitter, you can see that. Um, but what that chart says is basically lays out some different scenarios. The Fed comes out and says, okay, we're, we're still focused on this, really kind of no change to policy. That's, you know, kind of expected. Um, but if they could come out and be more hawkish. Now, the, the last speech at Jackson Hole was very hawkish, and that's what really kind of set the markets off on, on a tither over the last couple of weeks. But could the Fed be even more hawkish? Yeah, they could. They could come out and talk about the fact that inflation may, can, may be more persistent and running higher than 3% going into 2023, requiring them to continue to hike rates further. Now, right now, the expectations are a 75 basis point rate hike on Wednesday, 50 basis points at the next meeting, and 50 basis points on the following meeting after that, and then the Fed's done at four and a quarter. But the Fed could come out and say, hey, you know what, inflation's expected to run a lot hotter for a lot longer than we expect, and we're going to hike by a full basis point. We're going to hike 1%. Or they could even come out and shock the markets and hike one and a quarter percent if they're really trying to drive home this message that they're going to combat inflation. Now, anything more hawkish than 75 basis points, likely the markets are not going to like very much. And again, we are at risk of kind of breaking the support levels, retesting the June lows. You know, that is a real challenge here, and the markets could decline further from there. And again, this will depend really a lot on just how aggressive the Fed is tomorrow. Now, personally, you know, we kind of expect here in our shop that the Fed will pretty much remain status quo at this point. Reiterate statements from the last meeting, 75 basis point rate hike. I think that's widely expected by the markets. But the Fed, as I said, if the Fed really wants to drive home this message that inflation is the boogeyman, 
they could be more aggressive than that, and that could be and could weigh on stocks more than we expect. So at least be aware of that risk. I'm not saying that's a probability, but it is certainly a possibility that could impact stocks. So again, depending on how aggressive your portfolio is set up, you know, you know, this is kind of where you start thinking about going into the meeting try to hedge off some risk potentially. Now, one of the other things that has been going on, it's been interesting to watch, is that the 10-year Treasury yield has been rising here lately as, as bond positions are getting traded and set up uh, for the meeting. Now, despite the fact that the 10-year Treasury rate is back to its highest level in a decade, um, the actual bond itself, the bond price, we saw, we saw money flowing into bonds here for the last several days. Bonds have been building a very nice base here really over the course of the entire month. Uh, very oversold, about to trigger a buy signal on the bond side as well. So, you know, this is gonna be interesting to see coming out of this meeting on Wednesday, how the Fed positions it, and more importantly, not just the equity market, how it reacts, but watch the bond market. It'll tell you a lot about expectations of the economic growth and recession later this year. I'll be your host, Lance Roberts. Be right back after the break. Lots to get into. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. If your portfolio looks more like a horror show, you won't want to miss our next Candid Coffee on dealing with bloody markets. No tricks, just treats. From Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff with some not-so-spooky ideas to budgeting and how to maximize your cash. Don't be spooked by markets or Danny's bathroom. On our next Candid Coffee, Saturday, October 1st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Six seventeen. As we uh, can, you back it up a bit, <laughs> Mister Demille. <laughs> so. Uh, just recently here, uh, Switzerland's environment minister has come out with an idea that I can get behind. I'm going to have to tell my wife about this. Turn off the computer when you don't need it. Turn off the lights and shower together. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, nothing wrong with that. So I'm going to email this article to my wife. <laughs> yeah. Let us know how that works out. It'll work out great. <laughs> I like this idea. Um couple of things. So, uh, again, talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve. One of the Federal Reserve's most telling statements um, really this year so far has been two things. One, like I said, at Jackson Hole, Jerome Powell scrapped this, you know, previous message. Like I said, rewrote this very short, you know, kind of set of comments to kind of put the markets in its place. I mean, that was really the whole goal of that. And he did a successful job of, of doing that by telling them this thing, look, some pain is necessary, and I'm okay with below-trend economic growth. Now, below-trend growth is less than 2% because that's been the trend of growth you know, for the last 20 years. You know, so that tells you a lot about really their position on hiking rates. And, and, and really, over the course of the year, the financial markets have responded you know, fairly accordingly you know, with the markets, you know, being down so far about 20%. And, you know, 
Powell confirmed that, you know, the, the 2022 decline was what really the Fed wanted. Even Neil Kashkari, who is one of the more dovish Fed members, had echoed that sentiment when he said that he was happy to see the stock market fall. And he had said that back on August the 29th. And that came after Powell had reiterated that comment, that commitment to, to fight inflation, even if it meant, right, some pain to households and consumers. And so the markets are wanting, you know, the, the Fed wants the markets to come down, reduce overvaluation, reduce a lot of these problems that have happened. We had a lot of speculation. Um, you know, we saw all these SPACs getting issued back in 2020, 2021, a lot of just, you know, you know, very, very speculative uh, investment activity in markets. And that's not what the Fed likes. That, that, that's risk. And that when you have a lot of speculative activity in the market, that puts a bigger risk on a financial event that has a much bigger drag on the overall economic environments, right? And so, you know, they're okay with, with prices coming down. And as I've said before, the markets, the, the Fed looks at the markets very differently. We, we touched on this yesterday. We said that, you know, the problem with investors is that you tend to have an anchoring problem. And you tend to measure your portfolio from some high water mark, right? So January till now, you look at your portfolio and it's like, oh, my God, I'm losing all my money. The markets are down and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's completely irrational because you're not looking at your portfolio properly by doing that. Now, the Wall Street wants you to measure your portfolio from January the 1st to December 31st. That's because they want you to be upset. They want you to keep your money in motion. They want you selling last year's fund to buy their fund because money in motion creates fees. But that's not really good for you. This is why investors always jump from, you know, the, the, the best performing assets, you know, last year. They jump into those and those become the worst performing assets this year because, you know, that cycle, whatever's driving that last year is not the cycle this year. And so investors wind up just losing money over time because they're always jumping from what was working to what's, you know, what they're, what, you know, to something else. And it's generally the wrong move and it's all emotionally driven. But that's what Wall Street wants. And to see, the Fed doesn't look at the markets the same way that you've been taught to look at markets. And, and you should learn to look at markets the way the Fed looks at it, because you'll do better. If you look at your portfolio and say, where was I at the peak in, in March of 2020, right? And you're still up 15, 20% from those levels. Looks okay, right? Still got money. Yeah, I'm down a little bit from the peak, but I'm still making gains. And over the last couple of years, I've averaged a 6 7% rate of return. It's awesome. It's good. It's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. But what, by doing that, it, like we said yesterday, it helps you focus on the trend of your portfolio rather than these emotionally driven spot points in time. And see, the Fed looks at it th th that way. The Fed's saying, hey, Markets are still up 20% from where they were at the peak in uh, February of 2020. The wealth effect is still there. We have not, you know, the, the wealth effect has not been taken out of the economy just yet. So the economy can stand a little bit more pain. That'll help drop demand. As demand declines, we get softer economic growth, which leads to lower inflation. And that's what the Fed wants. And that's why the Fed's okay with 
households having some pain. Now, if you ask a lot of households, right, there's about 80% of households out here that are already experiencing inflation pain, having trouble making ends meet, having to go more into credit card debt, et cetera. You know, but when you look at the global data, right, and unfortunately that data is very skewed by the top 10% of income earners that own 90% of the stock market, from the Fed's point of view, the economy's okay. Just don't talk to your neighbors. But this is where we are. So, so again, you know, Neil Kashkari, others have already reiterated this idea that some economic pain is okay. So, and this isn't the first time, by the way, that Powell has used pain to really kind of describe, um, you know, what it might take to bring down inflation. He was at a Wall Street Journal event back in May of uh, 2017. He said there could be some pain involved in restoring price stability. That was in 2017. Sorry, I apologize. I misread that statement, that date. That was in May. I was on May 17th of this year. Sorry, I just misstated that. Um, but so back in May, he said that, look, you know, some pain's going to be involved to get price stability back in, 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 in check. And see, and that's the one thing that he's concerned about. Again, we go back to all of this speculative activity that we've had. That's the real risk. So, you know, this really, though, speaks to the conundrum in the markets. And, and, and as long as inflation remains uncomfortably high, and what is that? That's above 2%, according to the Fed. The Fed's going to continue to act in ways that is not as favorable to stock prices. Now, here's the interesting point of the markets. The Fed's already slapped the markets once when the markets were running up in anticipation of the Jackson Hole uh, meeting going, okay, the Fed's going to pivot. The Fed's going to pivot, right? Any day now, the Fed's going to pivot, and that'll be the time to buy stocks. And the Fed came out and said, no, we're not going to pivot. Smack, smack. Now the Fed is, now, now the markets are pricing in that the Fed's going to hike rates through the end of this year. But they're going to start cutting rates in May of next year. That's not good for markets either. Now, everybody's looking at this whole idea, in my opinion, incorrectly. Because they're expecting the Fed to hike rates, hike rates, hike rates, and then immediately start cutting rates. But... If the economy's doing okay, right? So the Fed, let's say the Fed hikes rates to four and a quarter percent, even four and a half, right? And the economy's doing okay. Economy's doing good, earnings are doing great, stocks are going up in price. Why is the Fed gonna cut rates? If everything is doing okay, inflation's back at 2%, economic growth is strong, earnings are good, everything you need for a supportive bull market, right? If that's the case, then why would the Fed start cutting rates? If the Fed is cutting rates, that means that something has gone wrong and the Fed has broken something. The Fed's hiked rates, they've hiked rates, they've hiked rates. The economy's slowing down, slowing down a lot more than expected. Earnings are contracting. Earnings are going into a recession. 
And if that is the environment and there's some risk of financial instability, then the Fed is going to be cutting rates and reverting back to QE. Now, in that environment, that is not good for stock prices. Stock prices are going to be dropping rather rapidly at that point because of whatever event that has occurred in the markets, like the, the Lehman moment. Because outside of that, there's no reason for the Fed to cut rates. The reason the Fed would be cutting rates and, and particularly reinstating QE is to stall a worse outcome for the markets and the overall economy. Because again, at the end of the day, look, markets, the Fed's not happy with, you know, the speculative excess we had in the markets, but they also don't want an unraveling of financial markets in an unorderly or disorderly manner. So far this year, the Fed's been lucky that we've had this 20% decline in the markets. There's been no pickup in volatility, right? Credit spreads remain very compressed. Volatility remains low. There's not any sign of financial instability right now. So the Fed's able to cut, is able to hike rates and the market's able to come down here because it's doing so in an orderly manner. But for the Fed to start cutting rates, that means that something orderly has now become disorderly and that is not going to be good for asset prices. So I think the market has it wrong that you know, this idea that the Fed, as soon as the Fed pivots, that you want to buy stocks, I'm not sure that's the case. Historically, you want to buy stocks when the Fed funds rates are back at zero. But we'll see how this works out. All right, be back from the break. Be sure you go by the website. Our latest article is out on the website right now, the Buffett Indicator, right? That's market cap to GDP. You know, is that really saying that the market's going to crash that's what the article's about today because again we kind of go through the analysis of what valuations really mean for markets and forward returns it's on the website now realinvestmentadvice.com be right back after the break with some more of the real investment show don't go away investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com if your portfolio looks more like a horror show you won't want to miss our next candid coffee on dealing with bloody markets no tricks just treats from richard rosso and danny ratliff with some not so spooky ideas to budgeting and how to maximize your cash don't be spooked by markets or danny's bathroom on our next candid coffee saturday october 1st register now at realinvestmentadvice.com candid coffee with ratliff and rosso realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. As a, just kind of a focus on the Fed tomorrow, of course, that's the big news that's going on. And, and of course, the, the other problem for markets is the risk of what the Fed is doing 
and the implications of that on the overall economy, right? So let's kind of put this into a, a, a chain of events. And I think this is something that's overlooked by a lot of the market right now, as well as analysts and investors. Again, if you take a look at analyst estimates for earnings going into next year, they're still exceedingly high, looking at $230 to $240 a share in earnings. And, and that is well above what the historical peak-to-peak -peak growth rate of earnings are. So if you go back in history and look at S&P 500 earnings and then draw a line an exponential growth trend line from each peak in those earnings, right? So earnings grow to a peak and then they decline. They grow to a peak and they decline. And those peaks grow over time, right? Because the economy's growing over time. So it makes perfect sense. And if you grow and if you draw an exponential trend line through each of those peaks, and it's called that's called peak to peak growth. That's about six percent on average. And it's a pretty predictable growth rate over time from peak to peak. From bottom from trough to trough it's about 5%. Now that all kind of, you know, lines up with the economic growth of the economy overall and that makes sense because again as we talked about before on the show, earnings just don't magically appear out of thin air. Earnings just aren't made up. Well, the way they're reported are made up in a lot of cases, but the top-line revenue of companies come from economic activity. So the growth of those earnings have to come from the growth of economic activity, so it makes complete sense that historically, since the economy has grown about 6% on average since 1947, now that growth rate is slowing, mind you, that earnings have grown about that rate as well from peak to peak. Now, coming out of a recession, earnings can obviously grow a lot faster than the economy because people are re-gearing back up and those type of things. You have a lot of suppression and margin compression, et cetera. So you have, a, you have some factors that can lead to a very fast recovery in earnings. So the earnings growth rate is faster than the economy. But from peak to peak, that's a good measure, grows with the economy. So the problem going forward now is, is that analysts have taken the 2020 growth in earnings and extrapolated that out into the future saying, well, what happened in 2020, 2021 is now the norm. But it's not the norm. You had a tremendous amount of stimulus poured into the economy that was sent directly to households. Now, it's one thing to put stimulus in the economy to bail out, you know, companies, right? We're going to forgive some debt. We're going to, you know, bail out banks, whatever, right? So we've done that before in 2008, and that didn't really have that much of an impact on the economy. But when you send checks directly to a household, they're going to spend it. So you inject $5 trillion worth of liquidity into the economy, not surprising you had this big surge in economic activity. That big surge in economic activity led to big increases in earnings because that's where the money went, right? It went from the consumer 
to the companies they bought stuff from. Now, at the same time, you had that, all these companies, and we had talked about margin expansion right after we said, we said one of the byproducts of this is going to be this massive surge in margins because companies had laid off all these employees. They had cut costs drastically. Now they have all this revenue coming in and low cost. So the profit margins were huge for these companies. Now, everybody's just assumed that that is, going, that is now the new norm, but it's not. Companies are re, have restaffed. In fact, if you take a look at employment, we're back to where we were pre-pandemic. Now, we haven't created new jobs. All we've done is hired everybody back, but you know everybody that got laid off now has their job back. And we're paying them more money. So all of a sudden, the cost of providing those goods or services has risen dramatically and the income that was being used to buy all these goods and services has now gone away. All that stimulus is now gone. But analysts are still predicting that we're going to have this explosion in corporate earnings and that margins are going to remain at peak margins indefinitely. And that's problematic because they won't. We've talked about valuations in the markets, and this is one part of the of the article that's out today on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com called the Buffett Indicator. Does it mean the market's going to crash? Is that if you take a look at you know valuations, valuations are still expensive. Now they've come down, right? So how do we measure valuations? We measure valuations by looking at price divided by earnings. So the P has come down by 20%, but the E has not come down that much. And valuations are still expensive on a trailing basis. Now, on a forward basis, valuations are cheaper because the E is still very high and the P has come down. But now the E is about to start coming down. So if you assume that price remains stagnant right here, right, price doesn't change, and the E comes down, valuations are going up. The only way to maintain the current valuations is for the E to come down and the P to come down as well, which means the price of the market has to fall as fast as the E. And this is all going to feed into the margin problem ultimately because corporate profit margins are going to come under pressure from several things. One, higher borrowing cost. The Fed's hiking rates, which means borrowing costs are going up at banks. The 10-year treasury rate has gone up, which means long-term debt is, being co is costing more. So if I want to go out and issue debt, in other words, for my business, I want to go issue out a bond. That rate I'm going to have to pay for that debt issuance is going to cost me more. Employee costs have gone up. The number of employees have risen. Benefit costs are going up. Healthcare costs are going up. Inflation is impacting me at every turn. And there is only so much of that that I can pass on to my customers. Now, right now, Companies have been fortunate enough to pass on a big bulk of that to customers. The question is, is and, and the, the risk is, is they can't do that indefinitely. Goldman Sachs out just recently talking about the same thing. Shrinking margins are a downside risk to stock market returns as hotter than expected inflation readings. And what's expected to be another outsized interest rate hike brings mounting uncertainty to earnings, according to Goldman Sachs. 
Morgan Stanley also has been talking about the same thing. We've been talking about this now for over a year. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the risk is that we're going to have, you know, a problem going forward. And, and again, as I said, you know, in the last segment, you know, there's many hoping that the Fed's going to immediately start cutting rates as soon as they stop hiking rates. And that's not likely the case unless that last rate hike was the theoretical straw that broke the camel's back. Now, it won't be. Again, as we talked about yesterday, there's there's about a nine to twelve month lead time on or lag time on rate hikes before they show up in the economy. So the Fed's going to be hiking rates, hiking rates, and it's going to look like that last rate hike in May of next year was the was the straw that broke the camel's back. But it won't be. It'll be the the two or three rate hikes prior to that that actually caused the problem. So now whatever problem is in the economy, you're going to keep beating it with more and more rate hikes, you know, as you're already trying to bail it out. So you have this lag effect that comes in. Uh, it, uh, I was on Adam Taggart recently, and he gave a good example of this. He's like, imagine sending a runner out um, ahead of you. And as he's running, you send other runners out with 25-pound plates, and you put them in his backpack, right? So the backpack's getting heavier, and he's still running, and you still are sending out runners, right? Well, you've got 10 runners out in front of you, all carrying 25-pound plates to the lead runner, stacking up his backpack, right? Well, he collapses under the weight, and there's still eight more runners coming up with more plates to put in his backpack before you realize that the runner's down at the front. And that's the way it works with the Fed, is that we're just layering on more and more of these, these weights on the economy and the Fed's going to be hiking these rates. Well, the one that actually causes the economy to stumble is going to be one that was several rate hikes back, but there's still more rate hikes coming. And so whatever causes the economy to break that is going to ultimately lead the Fed to start cutting rates, it'll look like the Fed just hiked and now they're going to start to cut, but it's because there's a problem. And it wasn't because of that last rate hike. It was the one that was five, four or five ahead of that. All right, quick break. Come back. We're going to wrap up The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com if your portfolio looks more like a horror show you won't want to miss our next candid coffee on dealing with bloody markets no tricks just treats from richard rosso and danny ratliff with some not so spooky ideas to budgeting and how to maximize your cash don't be spooked by markets or danny's bathroom <laughs> on our next candid coffee saturday october 1st register now at real investment advice Com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
an interesting uh, show on, uh, I forget which channel, I think it's on Netflix um, right now, which is kind of like Shark Tank for real estate. And it's got these four people on it and they're, you know, professional. One, one guy's like a professional athlete and then one guy's the CEO of Redfin. And it's interesting because what they do is, you know, it's, it's like Shark Tank. People come out and they pitch their piece of real estate property and these guys will give you a cash bid, you know, right there for the property. And you, know, you can sell your house, you know, right there on the spot or not. It's your choice. What's interesting is, is that Redfin is involved in this. And, you know, so it's, it's almost like a commercial for Redfin, the whole thing, right? Because every time the, the guy from Redfin talks, he's like, well, at Redfin, you know, we do this or that or that, you know, we, we bring homeownership to neighborhoods. Um, but it's interesting because a lot of this online real estate, you know, servicing that we saw come up uh, during the real estate boom is really starting to have some big problems, um, both in terms of transactions and, and other issues. Um, Open Door was this kind of online, you know, kind of sell your property online. And, and what they would do is they would buy your property from you and then they would turn around and, and mark it up and resell it to somebody else, right? And they were just making money hand over fist when markets were going up and people were lining up to buy homes. But as is always the case, and again, why the people, you know, running this company don't realize this stuff is that cycles end. And this all sounds, you know, good, fine, and dandy as long as it's, you know, things are moving in the right direction. But, you know, nobody ever plans for the eventual end. And, you know, the one thing you always know about real estate, you know, back in 2007, I was, I was doing this radio show and, you know, my wife and I were talking and, you know, there were all these, you know, house flipping, remodeling shows on television. And we said, and I said back then, I was like, you know, we've got to be near the peak of the housing bubble because, you know, every show on television now is how to buy and flip a house. And, you know, people were quitting their jobs, become real estate agents and blah, blah, blah. You know, in 2020, we were talking about the same thing here because you, you were back to that same environment. Not only that, you were also doing it in the real estate market, the stock market as well. People were posting on Facebook, you know, I just quit my job to become a day trader. Like, well, this is about the end of that run. Now, these things can last a little bit longer than you expect, but the end of the cycle is always clear. And I thought this was interesting because Open Door, you know, is now having problems. Not surprising. Last November, housing consultancy firm Zillow lobbed the first warning shot at the housing bubble had burst when it shocked markets, firing 25% of its workforce and announcing it had scrapped its robo-flipping program because it was losing money on every deal. The, 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 the robo <laughs> part of it, the algorithm, uh, wasn't calculating for a market downturn. While Zillow's debacle was was kind of marked the beginning of the end of the latest housing bubble, and again, we're we're still right in the midst of that housing bubble, you know, kind of meltdown. You know, you would have thought that other companies kind of pulling that same thread would have started paying attention. Well, apparently not, because recent startup Darling Open Door, this is according to Bloomberg which describes itself as, quote, a pioneer of data-driven spin on home flipping known as iBuying. 
i.e. a robo flipper, which has been optimized not for profit, but volume selling thousands of homes in a typical month. Now, let me re read that last sentence to you one more time. Um, <clears throat> it's a home flipping program known as iBuying, i.e. a robo flipper, which has been optimized not for profit. Well, there's your first problem. <laughs> but volume selling thousands of homes in a typical month, they have now lost money on 42% of its transactions in August, according to research firm Yipit Data. Open Door's performance is measured by the prices at, what, at which it bought and sold properties was even worse in key markets such as Los Angeles, where the company lost money on 55% of sales. Phoenix... Sales were down 76%. It was almost as if those indicative prices you see on Zillow and Open Door are dead wrong. And they are. Have you ever gone on, if you ever go online and look up a house, it'll say the Zillow estimate is uh, this or the Open Door estimate is that. And, you know, obviously not anywhere close to what the real market is doing. But, uh, you know, again, this isn't none of this is surprising. But when you start seeing these companies that are generating transactions move into speculative activity because it's all the craze, you have to know that you're towards the end of that bubble. And that's, you know, and that was a, a big driving decision for my wife and I to sell our house, too, because it was just, you know, insane. You know, this is going to have an impact on markets. Now, or, now, let's be clear, right? I'm not talking about another financial crisis because we don't have the, the mortgage crisis that we had before, but we are starting to see some of similar activities, right? No money mortgages, no money down mortgages, 3% down mortgages, right? Still, still got some of that activity going on. But, you know, a lot of these people that were buying houses at the peak market because they just, you know, people were being told you have to buy a house. You know, I, I have this argument every, almost every day with people, right? You have to own a home. It's stupid to rent. Really? Can we think about that for just a moment and really think about it? We're all tied up in this idea that we have to own a piece of property. Well, that's good for the real estate market because that's the one who promoted the whole idea that you have to own a home. See, real estate agents don't want you to rent. They don't make any money when you rent, right? They want to sell you a house. They can charge you a 6% commission, which is ridiculous in and of itself considering the amount of work they actually do to sell a house versus a money manager who manages money all year long for less than 1%. Do the math, right? Okay, I'm a little bit jealous. But other than that, that's, that's a different story. But think about this for a moment, right? We, we buy a house. And see, the only thing that we know about buying a house, and this is all that millennials have been told, is you buy a house at X price, you sell it at Y price, and you make all this money in between. What nobody told them, and this is why 46% of millennials are disappointed with their home purchase, is nobody told them about HOA dues, taxes, maintenance, upkeep, yard maintenance, you know, so forth and so on. All those expenses that go along with a house. And see, what we never do as, as homeowners, right, 
People tell me this all the time. Well, I bought my house for $200,000 and I sold it for $350,000. Lived there for 20 years. Great. You probably spent more than that in taxes, upkeep, and maintenance. But all we know is we anchor at those two endpoints, right? We know what we bought it for, we sold it, we think we made money. Well, you really didn't. But we're all told that we have to own a home. But see, we're not ever told about all the maintenance, upkeep, expenses. See, renting, I don't have any of that. I just pay a rent. The other day, you know, so we're, my wife and I are renting a home now. And the other day, AC went out. Now, at our last house, our AC, we had a problem with our AC. And, you know, a guy comes over. You got to pay him for labor. And you get, you get a bill for a new coil, whatever it is. It's 1800 bucks. You know, you got to stroke that check out of your bank account, right? It sucks. I'd rather have spent that money doing something fun. But I had to fix the AC. The other day, call the AC guy up. He comes over, fixes the AC, says, thank you very much, walks out the front door. No bill, no fuss, no muss. Right? Now, the guy that owns our house that we rent from, he got the bill. <laughs> Going to have to pay it. Then there was a problem with the plumbing. Right? Mental properties. Guy came out, had to pull the tub out, fix the plumbing problem, put the tub back in. You know, not my problem. House is nice and running work. House works great. Bill goes to the homeowner. So, you know, whatever rent I'm paying this month for the house has gotten eaten up by all the expenses he's been paying to maintain the house. So renting is not a bad idea, right? But we, we eschew this idea because we go, oh, you have to own a home because we've been told that by whom? The media, the real estate companies, you know, look at all the ads on, uh, on television for, you know, real estate companies. National Association of Realtors, right? Have that ad that run on, on TV, you know, buy a home today, you know, raise your family in this house. This is, this is you know, everybody needs a home. They're the National Association of Realtors, folks. They are not a biased or an unbiased organization. <laughs> it's like the retail sales that come out by the National, by the National Association of Retailers. <laughs> you know, they're promoting their retailing members, right? Go out and buy stuff from your local retailer. And look, I'm not saying that home ownership is bad. I will buy another home. I will own another home, right? I will. Not at these prices, but I will buy another home when the when prices come down enough. And I'm not saying that home ownership is bad. What I am saying, though, is that there is a big difference in buying a home because somebody tells you to buy one and buying it overpriced versus buying a home at a value and buying a place that you can afford and when you can't afford to do that, renting is not a terrible option. All right, wrap up the show today. We will uh, be back tomorrow, Wednesday, of course. Danny Ratliff joining me, watching for what the Fed says Thursday. We'll have Michael Leibowitz here. We'll go through all of it, what, uh, what Jerome Powell says tomorrow about the rate hike, evaluate what the markets are doing, try to make some adjustments from there. Uh, meantime, get by the website. Our latest blog post is up as well talking about the buffett indicator and does it mean the market's going to crash what is it what does the buffett indicator really mean that's what the article goes into today on the website realinvestmentadvice.com have a great day be back here tomorrow see you then